Book Two, Sections Thirty Two through Thirty Four of King Cole. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. King Cole by Upton Sinclair. Book Two, The Serfs of King Cole. Section Thirty Two. The two of them went back to the pit mouth. It had been two days since the disaster, and still the fan had not been started and there was no sign of its being started. The hysteria of the women was growing, and there was a tension in the crowds. Jeff Cotton had brought in a force of men to assist him in keeping order. They had built a fence of barbed wire about the pit mouth and its approaches, and behind this wire they walked, hard-looking citizens with policemen's billies and the bulge of revolvers plainly visible on their hips. During this long period of waiting, Hal had talks with members of his Czech Weyman group. They told what had happened while he was in jail, and this reminded him of something which had been driven from his mind by the explosion. Poor old John Edstrom was down in Pedro, perhaps in dire need. Hal went to the old Swede's cabin that night, climbed through a window, and dug up the buried money. There were five five-dollar bills— and he put them in an envelope, addressed them in care of General Delivery, Pedro, and had Mary Burke take them to the post office and register them. The hours dragged on, and still there was no sign of the pit mouth being opened. There began to be secret gatherings of the miners and their wives to complain at the conduct of the company, and it was natural that Howe's friends, who had started the Czech Weyman movement, should take the lead in these. They were among the most intelligent of the workers, and saw farther into the meaning of events. They thought not merely of the men who were trapped underground at this moment, but of thousands of others who would be trapped through years to come. Hal, especially, was pondering how he could accomplish something definite before he left the camp, for of course he would have to leave soon. Jeff Cotton would remember him and carry out his threat to get rid of him. Newspapers had come in, with accounts of the disaster, and Hal and his friends read these. It was evident that the company had been at pains to have the accounts written from its own point of view. There existed some public sensitiveness on the subject of mine disasters in this state. The death rate from accidents was seen to be mounting steadily. The reports of the state mine inspector showed six per thousand in one year, eight and a half in the next, and twenty-one and a half in the next. When fifty or a hundred men were killed in a single accident, and when such accidents kept happening, one on the heels of another, even the most callous public could not help asking questions. So in this case the GFC had been careful to minimize the loss of life, and to make excuses. The accident had been owing to no fault of the company's. The mine had been regularly sprinkled, both with water and adobe dust, and so the cause of the explosion must have been the carelessness of the men in handling powder. In Jack David's cabin one night there arose a discussion as to the number of men entombed in the mine. The company's estimate of the number was forty, but Minetti and Olson and David agreed that this was absurd. 
Any man who went about in the crowds could satisfy himself that there were two or three times as many unaccounted for. And this falsification was deliberate, for the company had a checking system, whereby it knew the name of every man in the mine. But most of these names were unpronounceable slavish, and the owners of the names had no friends to mention them, at least not in any language understood by American newspaper editors. It was all a part of the system, declared Jack David, its purpose and effect being to enable the company to go on killing men without paying for them, either in money or in prestige. It occurred to Hal that it might be worth while to contradict these false statements, almost as worth while as to save the men who were at this moment entombed. Any one who came forward to make such a contradiction would, of course, be giving himself up to the blacklist. But then Hal regarded himself as a man already condemned to that penalty. Tom Olson spoke up. "'What would you do with your contradiction?' "'Give it to the papers,' Hal answered. "'But what papers would print it?' "'There are two rival papers in Pedro, aren't there?' one owned by Alf Raymond, the sheriff emperor, and the other by Vagelman, counsel for the GFC. Which one would you try? Well, then, the outside papers, those in Western City. There are reporters here now, and some one of them would surely take it. Olson answered, declaring that they would not get any but labor and socialist papers to print such news. But even that was well worth doing. And Jack David, who was strong for unions and all their activities, put in, The thing to do is to take a regular census, so as to know exactly how many are in the mine. The suggestion struck fire, and they agreed to set to work that same evening. It would be a relief to do something, to have something in their minds but despair. They passed the word to Mary Burke, to Rovetta, Klowoski, and others, and at eleven o'clock the next morning they met again, and the lists were put together, and it was found that no less than a hundred and seven men and boys were positively known to be inside number one. End of section thirty-two Section thirty-three as it happened, however, discussion of this list and the method of giving it to the world was cut short by a more urgent matter. Jack David came in with news of fresh trouble at the pit mouth. The new fan was being put in place, but they were slow about it, so slow that some people had become convinced that they did not mean to start the fan at all, but were keeping the mine sealed to prevent the fire from spreading. A group of such malcontents had presumed to go to Mr. Carmichael, the deputy state mine inspector, to urge him to take some action. And the leader of these protestants, Hussar, the Austrian, who had been one of Howe's Czech Weyman group, had been taken into custody and marched at double quick to the gate of the stockade. Jack David declared furthermore that he knew a carpenter who was working in the fan house, and who said that no haste whatever was being made. All the men at the fan-house shared that opinion. The mine was sealed, 
and would stay sealed until the company was sure the fire was out. But, argued Hal, if they were to open it, the fire would spread, and wouldn't that prevent rescue work? Not at all, declared Big Jack. He explained that by reversing the fan they could draw the smoke up through the air course, which would clear the main passages for a time. But you see, some coal might catch fire, and some timbers. There might be falls of rock, so they couldn't work some of the rooms again. "'How long will they keep the mine sealed?' cried Hal, in consternation. "'Nobody can say. In a big mine like that, a fire might smolder for a week.' "'Everybody be dead!' cried Rosa Minetti, wringing her hands in a sudden access of grief. Hal turned to Olson. Would they possibly do such a thing? It's been done, more than once, was the organizer's reply. Did you never hear about Cherry, Illinois? asked David. They did it there, and more than three hundred people lost their lives. He went on to tell that dreadful story, known to every coal miner. They had sealed the mine, while women fainted and men tore their clothes in frenzy, some going insane. They had kept it sealed for two weeks, and when they opened it, there were twenty-one men still alive. They did the same thing in Diamondville, Wyoming, added Olson. They built up a barrier, and when they took it away, they found a heap of dead men, who had crawled to it and torn their fingers to the bone trying to break through. "'My God!' cried Hal, springing to his feet. "'And this man Carmichael, would he stand for that?' "'He'd tell you they were doing their best,' said Big Jack. "'And maybe he thinks they are. "'But you'll see. Something'll keep happening. "'They'll drag on from day to day, "'and they'll not start the fan till they're ready.' "'Why, it's murder!' cried Hal. "'It's business,' said Tom Olson quietly. "'Hal looked from one to another of the faces of these working people. "'Not one but had friends in that trap.' Not one but might be in the same trap to-morrow. "'You have to stand it,' he exclaimed, half to himself. "'Don't you see the guards at the pit-mouth?' answered David. "'Don't you see the guns sticking out of their pockets?' "'They bring in more guards this morning,' put in Jerry Minetti. "'Rosa, she see them get off.' "'They know what they're doing,' said Rosa. "'They only fraid we find it out.' They told Mrs. Zamboni she keep away or they send her out of camp, and old Mrs. Jonach, her husband, and three sons inside. They're getting rougher and rougher, declared Mrs. David. That big fellow they call Pete, that came up from Pedro, the way he's handling the women is a shame. I know him, put in Olson. Pete Hannon. They had him in Sheridan when the Union first opened headquarters. He smashed one of our organizers in the mouth and broke four of his teeth. They say he has a jail record. All through the previous year at college, Hal had listened to lectures upon political economy, filled with the praises of a thing called private ownership. This private ownership developed initiative and economy. It kept the wheels of industry a roll. It kept fat the payrolls of college faculties. 
It accorded itself with the sacred laws of supply and demand. It was the basis of the progress and prosperity wherewith America had been blessed. And here, suddenly, Howe found himself face to face with the reality of it. He saw its wolfish eyes glaring into his own. He felt its smoking hot breath in his face. He saw its gleaming fangs and claw-like fingers, dripping with the blood of men and women and children. Private ownership of coal-mines, private ownership of sealed-up entrances and non-existent escape-ways, private ownership of fans which did not start, of sprinklers which did not sprinkle, private ownership of clubs and revolvers, and of thugs and ex-convicts to use them, driving away rescuers and shutting up agonized widows and orphans in their homes. Oh, the serene and well-fed priests of private ownership, chanting in academic halls the praises of the bloody demon. Suddenly Hal stopped still. Something had risen in him, the existence of which he had never suspected. There was a new look upon his face. His voice was deep as a strong man's when he spoke. I am going to make them open that mine. They looked at him. They were all of them close to the border of hysteria, but they caught the strange note in his utterance. I am going to make them open that mine. How? asked Olson. The public doesn't know about this thing. If the story got out, there'd be such a clamor it couldn't go on. But how will you get it out? I'll give it to the newspapers. They can't suppress such a thing. I don't care how prejudiced they are. But do you think they'd believe what a miner's buddy tells them? asked Mrs. David. I'll find a way to make them believe me, said Hal. I'm going to make them open that mine. End of section 33 Section 34 In the course of his wanderings about the camp, Hal had observed several wide-awake-looking young men with notebooks in their hands. He could see that these young men were being made guests of the company, chatting with the bosses upon friendly terms. Nevertheless, he believed that among them he might find one who had a conscience, or at any rate who would yield to the temptation of a scoop. So, leaving the gathering at Mrs. David's, Hal went to the pit-mouth, watching out for one of these reporters. When he found him, he followed him for a while, desiring to get him where no company spotter might interfere. At the first chance, he stepped up and politely asked the reporter to come into a side street where they might converse undisturbed. The reporter obeyed the request, and Hal, concealing the intensity of his feelings so as not to repel the other, let it be known that he had worked in North Valley for some months and could tell much about conditions in the camp. There was the matter of adobe dust, for example. Explosions in dry mines could be prevented by spraying the walls with this material. Did the reporter happen to know that the company's claim to have used it was entirely false? 
No, the reporter answered, he did not know this. He seemed interested, and asked Hal's name and occupation. Hal told him, Joe Smith, a buddy who had recently been chosen as check weighman. The reporter, a lean and keen-faced young man, asked many questions, intelligent questions. Incidentally, he mentioned that he was the local correspondent of the great press association whose stories of the disaster were sent to every corner of the country. This seemed to Hal an extraordinary piece of good fortune, and he proceeded to tell this Mr. Graham about the census which some of the workers had taken. They were able to give the names of a hundred and seven men and boys who were inside the mine. The list was at Mr. Graham's disposal if he cared to see it. Mr. Graham seemed more interested than ever, and made notes in his book. Another thing, more important yet, Hal continued, the matter of the delay in getting the fan started. It had been three days since the explosion, but there had been no attempt at entering the mine. Had Mr. Graham seen the disturbance at the pit mouth that morning? Did he realize that a man had been thrown out of camp, merely because he had appealed to the deputy state mine inspector? Hal told what so many had come to believe, that the company was saving property at the expense of life. He went on to point out the human meaning of this. He told about old Mrs. Rafferty, with her failing health and her eight children, about Mrs. Zamboni, with eleven children, about Mrs. Jonach, with a husband and three sons in the mine. Led on by the reporter's interest, Hal began to show some of his feeling. These were human beings, not animals. They loved and suffered, even though they were poor and humble. "'Most certainly,' said Mr. Graham. "'You're right, and you may rest assured I'll look into this.' "'There's one thing more,' said Hal. "'If my name is mentioned, I'll be fired, you know.' "'I won't mention it,' said the other. "'Of course, if you can't publish the story without giving its source—' "'I'm the source,' said the reporter, with a smile. "'Your name would not add anything.' He spoke with quiet assurance. He seemed to know so completely both the situation and his own duty in regard to it, that Hal felt a thrill of triumph. It was as if a strong wind had come blowing from the outside world, dispelling the miasma which hung over this coal camp. Yes, this reporter was the outside world. He was the power of public opinion, making itself felt in this place of knavery and fear. He was the voice of truth, the courage and rectitude of a great organization of publicity, independent of secret influences, lifted above corruption. "'I'm indebted to you,' said Mr. Graham at the end and Hal's sense of victory was complete. What an extraordinary chance that he should have run into the agent of the great press association! The story would go out to the great world of industry, which depended upon coal as its life-blood. The men in the factories, the wheels of which were turned by coal, the travelers on trains which were moved by coal, they would hear at last of the sufferings of those who toiled in the bowels of the earth for them. Even the ladies, reclining upon the decks of palatial steamships 
in gleaming tropic seas, so marvelous was the power of modern news-spreading agencies that these ladies, too, might hear the cry for help of these toilers, and of their wives and little ones. And from this great world would come an answer, a universal shout of horror, of execration, that would force even old Peter Harrigan to give way. So Hal mused, for he was young, and this was his first crusade. He was so happy that he was able to think of himself again and to realize that he had not eaten that day. It was noontime, and he went into Reminitsky's, and was about half through with the first course of Reminitsky's two-course banquet when his cruel disillusioning fell upon him. He looked up and saw Jeff Cotton striding into the dining-room, making straight for him. There was blood in the marshal's eye, and Hal saw it, and rose instinctively. "'Come,' said Cotton, and took him by the coat-sleeve and marched him out, almost before the rest of the diners had time to catch their breath. Hal had no opportunity now to display his tea-party manners to the camp-marshal. As they walked, Cotton expressed his opinion of him, that he was a skunk, a puppy, a person of undesirable ancestry, and when Hal endeavored to ask a question, which he did quite genuinely, not grasping at once the meaning of what was happening, the marshal bade him shut his face, and emphasized the command by a twist at his coat-collar. At the same time two of the huskiest mine-guards, who had been waiting at the dining-room door, took him, one by each arm, and assisted his progress. They went down the street and passed Jeff Cotton's office, not stopping this time. Their destination was the railroad station, and when Hal got there he saw a train standing. The three men marched him to it, not releasing him till they had jammed him down into a seat. "'Now, young fellow,' said Cotton, "'we'll see who's running this camp.' By this time Hal had regained a part of his self-possession. "'Do I need a ticket?' he asked. "'I'll see to that,' said the marshal. "'And do I get my things?' "'You save some questions for your college professors,' snapped the marshal. So Hal waited, and a minute or two later a man arrived on the run with his scanty belongings, rolled into a bundle and tied with a piece of twine. Hal noted that this man was big and ugly, and was addressed by the camp-marshal as Pete. The conductor shouted, "'All aboard!' and at the same time Jeff Cotton leaned over towards Hal and spoke in a menacing whisper. "'Take this from me, young fellow. Don't stop in Pedro. Move on in a hurry, or something will happen to you on a dark night.' after which he strode down the aisle and jumped off the moving train. But Hal noticed that Pete Hannon, the breaker of teeth, stayed on the car a few seats behind him. End of section 34